So, um, yeah, as um, Andy said, I'm going to talk a little bit about ECMO, what I'm going to call ECMO-induced coagulopathy. So these um, pictures are on here at the bottom because last week I was fortunate I had a trip to uh, Korea, and I went to an anesthesia meeting there, so I got, you know, put a couple of slides in there that had uh, nice images from Korea. But in any event, it's going to be the same exact talk. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the epidemiology of, of bleeding in ECMO patients. We'll talk a little bit about what are some of the currently understood mechanisms of ECMO-induced coagulopathy. And we're going to talk about what's called von Willebrand factor GP1BA interaction. We'll go over that in quite a lot of detail. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what I'll call the procoagulant anticoagulant balance uh, during ECMO. So I think as many of you know, anecdotally, ECMO can be life-saving, uh, but one of the Achilles heels, if you will, uh, tends to be bleeding in patients on ECMO. So this is a somewhat old data, um, probably from maybe 2013 to 15, so it's older data. It might be a little bit more recent than that. But anyway, this is from our center, and this was just a simple kind of cohort study looking at bleeding in ECMO patients. And what you see here is that uh, about 50% of patients at that time had, had a bleeding event that was significant. And the incidence rate was about 10 bleeding events per 100 ECMO days. So uh, that was overall for the cohort. You can see bleeding happened in a variety of places, the chest, cannulation sites, gastrointestinal bleeding. There were some nosebleeds, et cetera. And the high-risk groups, not surprisingly, were VA ECMO patients and then also post-cardiotomy shock patients who had uh, very high rates of bleeding. And so it's also important to note that the bleeding is not trivial. It has an impact on uh, the patient's outcome. So here... Uh, you see the outcome. This is a Kaplan-Meier survival curve out to 90 days. So people who bled uh, the lower line and those who didn't bleed the upper line. So you can see they separate out, uh, you know, pretty pretty early on in the first few weeks, and then uh, there's a significant difference over time. So uh, in case you think our bleeding data is very very high, these are just four other cohort studies from the published literature, relatively recent, 2014 to 2017, and you see bleeding rates that are comparable, so somewhere in the, say, 30% to 40 to 60% range. And again, depends on the specific patient population. Uh, of course, VV ECMO tends to have less bleeding than VA ECMO overall. So we're going to start to talk a little bit about um, why uh, bleeding happens and some of uh, what's understood about why bleeding happen happens. Excuse me. And the first concept to really talk about is the concept of shear stress. And in order to understand shear stress, you could... Um, imagine taking your two hands uh, folded over one another and then pushing them sort of against one another. So that shearing force is the concept of shear stress. And uh, the normal range for shear stress in blood is about 15 to 49 per centimeter squared. And you see here that 2400 RPM generates uh, a, a supranormal or supraphysiologic shear stress rate. So 175 uh, dime per centimeter squared. So it's much higher than the normal range. And it, just keep in mind, so 2,400 RPM, I think as many of you know that um, our ECMO circuits often run higher, say in the three to 4,000 RPM range. So you can imagine uh, we're definitely supra-normal or supra-physiologic shear stress uh, right there. So you see some of the changes that happen to platelets uh, at these uh, ranges of shear stress. So, for example, at 100 dyne per centimeter squared, you can actually have lysis of platelets. And at, at uh, greater than 250, you can actually have just complete you know, sort of fragmentation of platelets. So uh, our pumps are running well above those um, 
RPM ranges, so you can imagine that we're having damage to platelets. And then also importantly, high shear stress leads to a loss of large von Willebrand factor multimers, which we're going to talk about a little more in the talk. So we'll start by talking about uh, von Willebrand factor. So von Willebrand factor is a glycoprotein. It's actually a, a multimer is the largest molecule in plasma, so it's, it's actually quite a lot larger than albumin, for example. Uh, it's a very, very large molecule. And so uh, you probably remember here, uh, you see a weibel plotty body, and inside you see uh, von Willebrand factor is stored in the endothelial cell. But in fact, that's only a small percentage of the von Willebrand factor. Most of it actually circulates in plasma normally. And um, just to go to this little diagram slash cartoon here, I want you to sort of think of von Willebrand factor as almost like a Velcro that holds a platelet to a, a site of endothelial injury. So here you see, for example, there's an endothelial injury. The collagen underneath the endothelial cell is exposed. Von Willebrand factor binds to the collagen. And then the von Willebrand factor binds to a platelet receptor, which is called GP1BA. And there are certain domains on von Willebrand factor. So there's an A1 domain, which binds to the platelets. Uh, there's an A3 domain, which binds to the collagen. And then there's a domain called A2, and that's where the molecule is actually cleaved. So that's a, a depiction of the von Willebrand factor GP1BA interaction. This is very important for primary hemostasis. So you have an injury and platelets need to um, adhere to the site of injury and aggregate is a very, very critical interaction. So uh, von Willebrand factor, we talked about a little bit already, um, but we're going to talk a little bit more about the structure. So there's a subunit for von Willebrand factor, and that's a roughly 2,000 amino acid chain. Um, two subunits actually form together a dimer, which I'll show you momentarily, and then multiple dimers form a multimer. And again, I'll show you that momentarily. We already mentioned most of the von Willebrand factor actually circulates in plasma with only a fraction being stored. So here you actually see a dimer. These are two subunits that are um, binded together by molecular interaction. And then you see what a multimer looks like, which it almost looks like this sort of funky tubule structure. And here you have multiple dimers uh, that are put together in a multimer structure. So what happens when the multimers are exposed to shear? This is important. Uh, essentially, a domain that is not normally exposed on the molecule becomes exposed, and then that leads to uh, an enhanced cleavage of the multimers by this enzyme, which is ADAMTS13. Most of you are familiar with that enzyme because it's uh, when it's absent, you have a disease called TTP. Um, and ultimately, the loss of multimers leads to a loss of von Willebrand factor function and poor platelet adhesion at the site of injury. So um, this is a nice uh, image that I think kind of summarizes what we just talked about. So this is a normal uh, conformation of von Willebrand factor. It's sort of globular looking, exposed it to shear stress, and the molecule is essentially stretched into this linear type of structure. The domain is exposed. That's not normally exposed. And then you get cleavage of the multimers uh, more than you would normally have. So we're going to just talk a little bit about the assays for von Willebrand factor evaluation because they're pretty important in understanding um, this uh, coagulation abnormality during ECMO. So we'll start by talking about what's called von Willebrand factor antigen. And uh, you could think of antigen level as a test that basically looks for a certain sequence on the subunit. So it tells you about how much total von Willebrand factor there is, but it doesn't tell you about functionality. It doesn't tell you about uh, multimer presence, so that's antigen. 
we have what's called the von Willebrand factor ristocetin cofactor activity. You probably are familiar with this assay. So ristocetin is an antibiotic. And uh, when you do this test, you actually don't so you use the patient's plasma and you use uh, platelets that are from normal donors so that it's actually not the patient's plasma, which is an important point. Um, and basically, ristocetin leads to um, von, Will uh, von Willebrand factor interaction with uh, those platelets on the GP1B receptor. So it will tell you about functionality. But again, it's important to know that that's not uh, the patient's actual platelets. It's a, a donated platelet uh, in that assay. There's a similar functional assay called von Willebrand factor collagen binding. It's available in some places. It tells you about the opposite end of the interaction, not von Willebrand factor to platelet, but von Willebrand factor to collagen. Don't think that's available here. Risto is available and antigen is available. And then there's a multimer analysis, which we're going to go over here in a second, and that's important to tell you about the loss of large multimers. So I don't want to go into too much detail on how the multimer analysis is done, but it's basically a gel electrophoresis, and you end up with these sort of triplet bands. And the reason you end up with triplet bands in each level, say small, medium, large multimers, is the um, subunits can be cleaved in different locations. And so you get fragments that end up in these triplets that you see there. And so this is um, these are some patterns that you observe in the, mul in the um, multimer analysis. So this is, for example, a normal patient. Um, and then next to it, you actually see a TTP patient. So that patient has unusually large multimers, meaning they're not cleaved, right, because they don't have the Adam TS13 enzyme. And then actually you have uh, next to it here in these panels, you have normal patient plasma. You have type 1 von Willebrand disease, which is a quantitative loss, usually mild uh, von Willebrand factor. And then you have qualitative diseases, 2A and 2B. And in those diseases, you see you lose the intermediate and large multimers. So those are functional uh, d deficits of von Willebrand factor. This is a really nice study. Uh, I like it a lot. It's uh, published in 2014 in Journal Artificial Organs. And it's a great study because it shows you the effect that uh, shear stress has, the temporal effect on the presence of multimers. So what you see here in panel A is a control. Panel B is a kind of a moderate shear. And panel C is a high shear. And they show um, they show exposure over time to this shear stress level, so six hours. And what you see here is in the intermediate uh, shear, you lose multimers over the first six hours. The loss is kind of, you know, mild, if you will. And then you see there's a dose effect, right? So when you expose to high shear, you lose a lot of multimers over the first six hours. So uh, it's progressive and it's dose-dependent. Data from the same study. So um, this is showing the, um, again, control, moderate shear, high shear. And what you have here is you have an antigen level, you have the RISTO, which, which is the functional test, and then you have the ratio of the RISTO to the antigen, which tells you about basically the relationship between functionality and presence of molecule. So antigen stays the same over time. And what you have is you have the RISTO going down over time as you lose the multimers. And then the ratio of the risto to the antigen uh, goes down over time. So this is basically a pattern, exactly pattern that we see in real clinical patients. So we see the ratio uh, falling in somewhere in this range of, say, 0 0.5, 0 0.6. Uh, and that's fairly typical of what we see in clinical practice. Um, so who does this happen in? This is a fairly small study, but it's uh, a good study. Um, so you can see here... Um, you know, they had uh, basically only samples on a couple of people before implantation. Sometimes it's hard. The patients come in shock. 
but after patients were on ECMO, essentially every patient uh, had this uh, ratio less than 0.7, so basically every patient has this deficit. Um, and when they did multimer analysis, everyone essentially was missing the multimers. But the good news is that after the patients are off ECMO, it's fully reversible in all patients. So you can see after ECMO explantation, basically no patients have this uh, deficit. Um, same kind of data uh, showing you the loss of the multimers on the gel, showing you the, uh, you know, the ratio of collagen binding to antigen and how it returns to normal after the patients are off, essentially in everyone. Um, this is another study basically corroborating what I just showed you. This is published in Anesthesia and Analgesia 2015. And in this study, um, you know, you similarly see so antigen level stays fairly high in the ECMO patients. Risto goes down on ECMO, so you have baseline, you have on ECMO, and then after ECMO, which uh, Risto returns to normal. And here you see the ratio. Um, so baseline close to 1, on ECMO is 0.6, and then after they come off, it's close to 1 again. So... Um, again, showing it's, um, you know, very common and showing it's reversible after the patients come off, thankfully. So I'll just tell you about a little study that we did here, which is a study where we had some uh, samples, uh, VA ECMO, all VA ECMO, so patients were in cardiogenic shock. So we had an early sample, day one or two, day three, day five. We did similar kind of analysis with von Willebrand factor, antigen, Risto, multimers. And then we also looked at what's called a glycocalicin level, the platelet GP1B receptor also gets um, cleaved off the platelet surface, and the cleavage product is actually uh, a molecule called glycocalicin. So we are looking at both ends, the loss of uh, von Willebrand factor function, but also whether the platelet uh, receptor is abnormal in ECMO patients. And we used a variety of assays, which I'm going to show you here to do this. So our data is fairly similar to that observed you know, in the other studies that I showed you, so antigen level was remained the same or high, mostly on, in, on ECMO. Risto um, level compared to antigen was was low, so I don't know, probably in that 0.6 range, so very similar. Um, and the glycocalcin level, meaning the GP1B cleavage, was on the high end. So it uh, basically shows you that there was a part that's related to the platelet receptor being cleaved and a part that's related to this functional deficit of von Willebrand factor. This is our gel. It's not quite as pretty, but you can see, again, loss of some of these higher bands here. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit about a different um, experiment, which is really neat, and it has a video image to come with it, which I think will be very uh, informative. So we have a device which looks at platelet adhesion, and basically it has a camera, and it has channels that are lined with collagen. And so you pump the blood through these channels, and a normal patient... Uh, basically, as the collagen is there, the von Willebrand factor should bind to the collagen, and the platelets should make plugs in these channels. And then the pressure builds up, and the device reads a pressure, and it gives you an area under the curve for this. And so what I'm showing you here is that um, I'll, I'll just tell you for this area under the curve for a normal person, if you took a control, it, the area under the curve would be about 300 uh, based on how the platelets plug these channels. In an ECMO patient, it's severely, severely abnormal. So uh, area under the curve is, you know, somewhere in the 3 to 5 range. So you're talking about having just a fraction of the normal platelet adhesion to what you have in a normal person or a control. And so what we did in the experiment is we also added von Willebrand factor, uh, and we saw whether or not that improved the adhesion. And you can see it improves it a lot, actually, but it doesn't get it back to sort of that baseline level of, of 300. And the other thing that's interesting is there's almost 
sort of less response to the von Willebrand factor concentrate over time, if you could imagine that in your head, which is an interesting phenomenon. So um, similar kind of data here I'm showing in the table form, but the other thing I'll point out is so we separate those who had clinical bleeding and those who didn't. And one thing that's kind of interesting is that people who didn't have clinical bleeding seem to respond a little bit better to the von Willebrand factor concentrate, meaning maybe they have, uh, you know, more GP1B um, is, or GP1B is better intact on those platelets, so they actually get a little more uh, boost when you add the uh, von Willebrand factor concentrate. But that, that's a little bit speculative. So in any event, the von Willebrand factor concentrate improves the platelet adhesion, but it doesn't normalize it. So I'm going to show you the video. And before I show you the video, so these are the collagen line channels. This is the blood that goes through the channels. It's being pumped through. So on the top, you have, this is a day two sample. This is a day five sample. And then you have the baseline, and you have when we add the von Willebrand factor. So you see the blood going through. There's red cells. There are platelets. Now you see the platelets are starting to adhere a little bit, but there's no real good adhesion. They just kind of get pushed along. Whereas in the von Willebrand factor uh, added sample, you can see you actually get platelet plugs, right? So there's a, a real problem with platelet adhesion. I'll play one more time so you guys can see, but it's kind of neat, right? So again, blood going through. See the platelets are sort of there, but they just kind of move along. They don't really want to hold on, right? Whereas in the von Willebrand factor, treated sample, you can see you get better plugs in the channels. It's pretty neat. All right, so summary of the findings. Um, the pattern in ECMO patients is characterized by high antigen levels, normal risto compared to a control, but the ratio of the risto to the uh, antigen is actually low. It's not one. It tends to be more in the 0 0.5, 0 0.6 range. You lose the large multimers. Um, and then platelet adhesion uh, in vitro is very, very poor. So it's about 3% of what a normal control uh, is reported to have. And then finally, um, there's also GP1B cleaving because we saw some elevated um, uh, glycocalcin in the assays that we performed. I'm going to skip that slide. Um, so is the GP1B thing novel? It's been reported, but not nearly as much as the von Willebrand factor uh, defect. This is one study. It's a, a pretty nice study, and it had ECMO patients. It had LVAD patients and a control group of patients with cardiac comorbidities. And they did a similar kind of analysis for von Willebrand factor, but they also did some flow cytometry where they looked at um, the platelet receptor, the GP1BA receptor. And what you see here is uh, they had healthy controls. And then the patients who were on mechanical support had lower GP1BA levels. But interestingly, so did patients who were not on mechanical support who had uh, cardiac disease. So, you know, how much is due to mechanical support versus just cardiovascular disease? Unclear a little bit, but kind of an interesting study. All right, so some limitations in that. It was a pretty small study. There were one or two patients taking antiplatelet drugs. Um, and then the dose we used was on the, tend to be on a little bit on the lower end in the concentrate that we used, which was actually, uh, we used one called Wylate. doesn't have a huge multimer content or very high multimer content. So there were some limitations uh, to that. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. We talked about the platelet adhesion defect in ECMO, and we're going to talk a little bit about what I'll call the procoagulant-anticoagulant balance. And so, um, you know, going into the study that I mentioned before, my assumption was that, probably like a lot of people, that there would be consumption of coagulation factors during ECMO, and so you would actually have falling coagulation factor levels over time. Um, and uh, in fact, well, before we get to that, maybe I'll survey the audience. So. Who thinks you have a fall in coagulation factor levels over time on ECMO? Raise your hands. 
Okay, a couple people. Reasonable. Who thinks that they stay the same? They don't change much. Anybody? Who thinks they go up? All right, so I assumed they would go down over time. We're going to come back to that in a second. This is a early study that I think is a real nice study. It's a pretty small study. It was published in the Journal of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Anesthesia. It's from Australia in 2015. And basically in the study, they did a comprehensive panel of coagulation assays on patients over time. So here you see platelet counts in ECMO patients over time tended to fall. And the green box shows you the normal range, so tended to be low and tended to fall. Here you see fibrinogen levels actually tended to be supernormal, and that's actually what we observe often in patients on ECMO. Prothrombin time is actually prolonged, which is kind of interesting, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. PTT, and this is after heparin neutralization, is normal for the most part. I'm going to skip the Rotem parts for one second. And here, uh, there's actually some more information. So these are clotting times on Rotem. So there's an extrinsic pathway test on Rotem, and there's an intrinsic pathway test. And the extrinsic pathway test actually is abnormal in a lot of patients. So it's prolonged, extrinsic pathway. Intrinsic pathway is normal for the most part. So again, that's after neutralizing for heparin. So there seems to be an extrinsic pathway uh, abnormality, but intrinsic pathway seems to be relatively normal. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we had this cohort of 20 patients. We temporally measured uh, some blood samples. So for the second part of this, we looked at procoagulant factor levels, some anticoagulant factor levels. We looked at some markers of uh, coagulation system activation, so uh, thrombin, antithrombin complex uh, is an example of that. And then we performed some thrombin generation experiments at uh, three study time points. I'll have to kind of explain the way those work to you in, in a moment. And, th and before we do this too, let me just say these are, when we do the um, thrombin generation, we neutralize heparin first, so it takes out uh, the effect of heparin. So interestingly, um, th this was the results of the procoagulant factor levels over the first five days on ECMO, and again, this is all VA ECMO patients. What you see here is that, in fact, procoagulant factors go up, uh, not down, over time in the first five days on ECMO, which was rather surprising. but wasn't really that surprising we thought about it more carefully uh, you know patient in cardiogenic shock uh, a lot lot of times they have uh, you know shock liver uh, so they uh, have restored perfusion and so liver starts to make coagulation factors again so uh, you can see uh, factor two level uh, prothrombin level goes up over time five level goes up over time interestingly um, what you see here is factor eight level is sky high on ECMO throughout so it's super normal and remember, factor eight is not per, is produced in endothelial cell. It's unique in that way. So there's a lot of release of von Willebrand factor and factor eight from endothelial cells during ECMO. And then you see 10 and 11 levels go up, although 11 doesn't go up quite as much as the other factor levels, and 11 is in the contact um, pathway. So maybe uh, there is some consumption of factors in the contact pathway. Um, here you see uh, anticoagulant factor levels also went up over time. So... Um, Antithrombin level went up, as did protein C level over time. And then, it, you know, I would just say about the coagulation, um, markers of coagulation system activation, they're there. So there's clearly um, some thrombin generation that happens uh, during ECMO. So even though we heparinize patients, it doesn't shut down, um, you know, thrombin generation fully. And there's, there's definitely um, activation of the coagulation system. So you can see there uh, are D-dimers produced. So clearly there is um, fibrin polymerization that happens during ECMO. 
All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about the thrombin generation experiments, but I have to kind of explain the way that works to you. So when you do the thrombin generation, you take the patient's plasma and you add an activator, and usually we add tissue factor. Uh, and when you add the tissue factor, you basically get uh, production of thrombin. And it sort of gives you a bell-shaped curve. So there's a beginning parameter, which we call the lag time. That's the time until the thrombin generation starts. Then it starts to go up. Uh, like a hump and then it comes down and often there's a tail as it comes down sort of at the end and so what I'm going to show you is we kind of if you imagine the bell curve and you split it in half at the top point you'd have a beginning phase and you'd have an end phase and so we separated that thrombin generation curve we make a procoagulant portion and a we'll call a sort of inhibitory or shutdown portion which is the second half and so here you see thrombin generation from a normal control plasma and then you have the thrombin generation for the ECMO patient plasma. And what you can see is it's supranormal by a lot. So um, the and the supranormal uh, bit is mainly driven by this very high inhibitory component. So the way you could interpret that is um, the thrombin generation, uh, you know, once it starts, the tail is very, very long, so it doesn't shut down very quickly, um, which is an interesting sort of phenomenon. I don't have the data on the slide, but I'll just tell you that um, the lag time is also prolonged in ECMO patient plasma, and that's consistent with the prolonged prothrombin time from the Nair study that I showed you before. Um, some ideas about why that might be true, but one possibility is that uh, there's a molecule called tissue factor pathway inhibitor, and uh, the levels of that molecule actually go up when patients are on heparin, so it actually slows activation of the extrinsic pathway, uh, and that's probably what's going on in ECMO patients. I hope to actually um, use some leftover plasma to measure the tissue factor pathway inhibitor levels. So um, in any event, thrombin generation is slow to kick in on ECMO, but once it kicks in, it's very hard to shut down. Uh, and, and that's probably driven by the high factor eight levels uh, that I showed you uh, in the patients where we measured those levels. Um, so to sort of go into that a little bit further, so on top of doing a regular thrombin generation experiment, we do another set of experiments and we add thrombomodulin. And if you remember, throm thrombomodulin, uh, when it binds to thrombin, that leads to activation of protein C. And protein C shuts down factor five and factor eight. Uh, that's what it does. And what you see here is in a normal person, if you add thrombomodulin, it completely obliterates the thrombin generation, basically, to almost nothing. However, in an ECMO patient, uh, when you add thrombomodulin, there's protein C resistance. So you can see uh, the thrombin generation is still high. Uh, basically, uh, again, factor eight level is very high. So um, protein C has to work sort of overtime to shut down the thrombin generation, if that makes sense. So take home point, factor eight level is, is sky high during ECMO. Um, fibrinogen levels also tend to be high. Um, the procoagulant factors tend to increase, as do anticoagulant factors, at least in VA ECMO patients, over the first few days as shock improves. And then the underlying thrombin generation pattern, although thrombin generation is delayed, it's actually supranormal once it kicks in. So this is a possible explanation for a uh, hypercoagulable mechanism uh, during ECMO. Yeah.
great question. I don't have any data. You know, I could guess, but I, my guess would be, I think that probably the eight levels would still be high. Some of the same phenomenon would be there. You know, I think you still get a lot of release of von Willebrand factor eight from the endothelial cell. There's some kind of something related to, you know, blood circulating through the pump that does that. I don't know. It's super well understood. I'm not sure the factor levels would go up as much, you know, over the first five days because you just don't see as much shock liver. You might see some, but I think VA ECMO, my guess is they're a little more flat, you know, over time. But I don't think there's a tremendous amount of consumption that happens. You know, we didn't measure for 10 days or 20 days or something, but I don't, I think the consumption is a little bit, people assume there's consumption, but I'm not sure there's that, that much, you know, don't know, but it's great. I'd love to know for VV, so maybe you can do study. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, future directions, I think, try to understand how much of the um, coagulation abnormality is from the von Willebrand factor portion versus the platelet uh, portion versus, who knows, other mechanism. Um, I do have one uh, pi- kind of small study of 10 patients uh, where we did flow cytometry uh, in the ECMO samples temporarily over time and looked at a GP1B uh, receptor expression on platelets, so I hope to have those results pretty soon. Um, and then I think to understand, you know, for the treatments, how much von Willebrand factor do we give? How do we give it? And which factor concentrate do we use? Because there are a lot of products available, you know, on the market, and we talked about that a lot uh, recently in the cardiac ICU, uh, what we would do moving forward. So those are some things I think that will be important for the future. That's it, and happy to answer any questions. Dr. Shanholtz. Yes. So I would love to see Impella data. I agree. It's because RPM is like 29,000, right? So um, interestingly, though, you don't, we just don't, I, I haven't cared for enough Impella patients. I may have taken, you know, care of a handful, but to see the bleeding complications much and um, I don't know if anybody has had experience with bleeding complications in pellet patients. I would assume you lose the multimers at 29,000 RPMs. Uh, but it's a great, it'd be a great patient population to study, even five patients to get a sense of, you know, if similar or more extreme changes were present. Definitely. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible technology. Any other question? All right. And thank, thanks, Mike. Mike, I haven't seen you in forever. It's nice to see you. How are you, man? Good to see you. How's everything? Family's good? And... I know we're struggling, truthfully, we're kind of struggling. We'll get somebody, but I mean, honestly, people are just getting excavated a lot. Like, some of the people we think are going to be going to get excavated.
know that guy pretty well? Could you facilitate that? Okay, if we might have to do another IRB and stuff, but if we need to, we can't go anywhere. Um, no, but that's a, uh, yeah, that's a...